This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and who's actually making false rape accusations. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Christina Cotarucci. I'm a senior writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And joining me is philosopher and Oxford professor, Amiya Srinivasan, who just published a new collection of essays this week. Amiya, welcome to The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. Amia's new book is called The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century, and it covers a lot of ground that we've explored on the show, sexual power dynamics, capitalist feminism, how to respond to sexual abusers. The book is deeply rooted in a variety of feminist ideologies and scholarship, but Amia asks new questions of a lot of those older texts, which I found just incredibly energizing and challenging. I'm so excited to talk about it on the show today. For the most part, I would say these essays don't offer prescriptive arguments. They're not policy papers. They're reframings of issues that feminists in every wave of the movement have grappled with. How should feminists respond to sex work? Can we change our own sexual desires by force of political will? And once we dismantle prisons and abolish the police, what happens to the rapists? We'll get into those questions and more after the break. I just want to take a second to welcome all our new listeners and to our old faithfuls. Thank you, as always, for being here. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out some of our older episodes, like last week's, where Slate writers Rebecca Onion and Heather Schwedell discussed the death and legacy of teen magazines. Okay, Amia, I want to start our conversation on the question of false rape accusations. You write, in the false rape accusation, wealthy white men misperceive their vulnerability to women and to the state. This was an extremely clarifying statement for me. Can you explain what exactly you mean by that? So all of the evidence suggests that false rape accusations are very, very rare, like several orders of magnitude rarer than actual incidents of rape. And false rape accusations are are like plane crashes, right? They end up being the target of like a disproportionate amount of fear and anxiety. And the interesting question is why? And one thing you might want to say is, well, it's because um, they usually happen to men, right? So when people are falsely accused of rape, it's typically men who are falsely accused of rape. But I don't even think that begins to give us a satisfying answer because so many men, more men are raped than are the victims of false rape accusation. And this is especially true in the US where you have a system of mass incarceration that is also a system of mass sexual abuse, especially, but not only, of, of men and poor men and men of color in particular. So what what's going on with the kind of 
cultural hysteria around the false rape accusation. Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that it's seen as a weapon that's wielded by women against men. Even that's not entirely true, because when men are falsely convicted and imprisoned on the basis of a false accusation, it's it's very often not women who are behind those false accusations, but rather other men. So specifically men who serve as police officers and prosecutors who coach false witness statements or otherwise kind of pin crimes on a conveniently um, situated men, right? Often men of color. Part of the phenomenon is that you have men thinking of the false rape accusation as as a tool at women's disposal and one of the few tools at women's disposal to kind of turn the decks against men, right? And to rig a system that's normally rigged in men's favor against men. But I think there's also an anxiety about race and class, at least in places like the US and, and the UK, where men of color and poor men are disproportionately um, harmed by the coercive apparatus of the state, by the judicial system, by the criminal justice system. Meanwhile, you have wealthy, middle-class white men who are generally very confident, with good reason, that the state is fundamentally on their side. They aren't going to be subjected to unfair uh, stop and searches, aren't going to be subject to racial profiling, and so on. But I think For a lot of middle-class white men, the false rape accusation represents an almost unique point of vulnerability with respect to the state and state power. Not in actuality, right? Because the people who are disproportionately victims of the false rape accusation are, again, men of color and presumably poor men who make up the majority of people in U.S. prisons. But nonetheless, I think in the kind of white middle-class male imagination, there is this sense that the false rape accusation represents a possibility of them being treated the way in which poor men, and especially poor men of color, routinely are treated by the state. Mm -hmm. I mean, just thinking about the types of men who we often hear, you know, worries about false rape accusations. You know, these are usually white men in positions of power or white men of privilege, you know, at university or in other places where, again, as you say, like, except for this one instance, they might expect that they would be treated better than poor men of color. But here they're, you know, it's almost the idea of they're being possibly treated equally that is such a site of fear. Right, exactly. But of course, the reality is that they're not treated equally. So if you <laughs> right. look at, you know, the exonerations of people who've been convicted and imprisoned in, in the US for sexual assault and sexual violence, again, it's disproportionately men of color, right? So men of color, especially black men, are disproportionately put into prison for sexual crimes they did not commit. And nonetheless, the hysteria around the false rape accusation is very much focused on well, it very much comes, as you were saying, from financially secure white men and their mothers very often and their partners. And it's also fixated on on spaces like the university campus, which, again, don't render these men particularly vulnerable to false accusation. And in this first chapter where you're writing about, you know, how to respond to allegations of sexual assault, you make it very clear that our current systems of addressing sexual violence are not working. This is the first of many avenues of your skepticism of state interventions uh, for 
putatively feminist causes. You write that when the criminal justice system disproportionately punishes poor men of color and even affirmative consent laws, which have sort of become, you know, the new standard that a lot of feminists will push for, can't quite get at the deeper issue um, at a lot of at the center of a lot of cases of unwanted sex, which is a whole variety of reasons why women feel compelled to follow through with sex, why men feel empowered to cajole a woman into sex when she doesn't seem quite into it. So in response to these inadequacies, we've seen women turn to social media to air their allegations outside of these current systems. But you sort of urge caution here, too. I do urge caution, or at least reflection, a a call for reflection and a call for a greater amount of honesty about what we're doing when we take to social media. I rush to say, you know, the, the reason that women reach to Twitter or Facebook and these kind of decentralized apparatuses is because of the failure, right? The huge failure of any other kind of formal system of accountability, right? When it comes to forms of sexual violence. So there's a problem here and this is a response to it. But I think sometimes people aren't willing to fully reckon with the idea that there is a punitive aspect to going after people on social media. I mean, one thing that people are really in denial of is sometimes it can cost people their livelihoods and their jobs, right? And I think we should be very anxious about any time we're further empowering bosses to fire workers. So that's one, just one thing to say. And very often what ends up happening is that the really powerful men are totally fine because they are the bosses. And it might actually be people who are, you know, lower down on the food chain who are going to be disproportionately affected. But I also think that there are interesting um, and not totally accounted for kind of psychic costs of forms of kind of online, you know, retribution or things like that. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, feminists need to be saints by any means. I just think we need to be having a kind of more open and honest conversation about like what we actually want to do about the problem of sexual violence and sexual harassment. And what do we want to do with these men? Are all of them like beyond the pale? (laughs) Um, Are we just going to imprison all of them? I mean, obviously not. I mean, are we going to just kind of reach to the standard carceral apparatus or kind of quasi-carceral apparatuses? Or can we think more imaginatively and creatively about ways of going forward? And I think that any kind of really responsible and also radical feminism has to take those questions seriously. And that requires a fundamental transformation in social reality. And I don't think that forms of genuine sexual equality can come out, come into existence when you don't have things like racial equality or economic equality, right? This has to be part of a broader package of, of a liberatory egalitarian politics. That, I think, is maybe the most fundamental problem with, with just trying to come up with rules and then using fear of punishment, right? Because fear of punishment will stop men from having certain outward forms of sex, right? Maybe it will stop them from having non-consensual sex or, or be a little bit more afraid of having non-consensual sex. But it doesn't begin, I think, to address like the more fundamental thing that is going awry in so much of the sex that we're having with each other. In fact, you write that, you know, in societies with greater degrees of economic inequality, And racial domination, I believe, is the phrase you used. We see higher rates of gender-based violence, in part because these are things that 
cause men to have a crisis of masculinity. And often they act that out on the women in their lives. Yeah, it's extraordinary how strongly correlated domestic violence rates are with male unemployment the world over. The the other problem with the kind of carceral approach is that it distracts from those deeper social crises that often produce or exacerbate sexual violence. I'm certainly not trying to suggest that domestic violence is only caused by male joblessness or crisis in masculinity. I mean, there are plenty of rich men who also like beat their their women partners, but it's certainly a, a very strong exacerbating factor. And as long as we're being seen to target a few offending men, suing them, putting them in prison, it can it can feel like we are doing something about the you know, about the problem. But really, the fundamental problems are so much deeper. Um, And so carceral solutions act as a kind of cover for underlying social crises that make women more vulnerable than than men. Right. This is, I have to admit, one of the hardest things to wrap my head around when it comes to domestic violence. And this, your book was not the first time I've encountered this, these set of facts about domestic violence and what studies have shown. But it's emotionally a difficult one for me. And I I think it probably is for a lot of feminists. You know, the fact that domestic violence arrests have been shown to actually worsen the suffering, specifically of those victims who are poor women of color, because they're subjected to more violence in retaliation or because they lose a partner and a moneymaker in the family. You know, the idea that Perhaps if we gave these men jobs instead of sending them to jail for assaulting their wives, you know, I think that will always feel tremendously unsatisfying, even enraging for many feminists, um, perhaps less so for women who are actually in the position where they've experienced some of these effects firsthand. But I think here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you might draw a distinction between a politics of symbolism and one of reality. Absolutely. So I think the carceral approach to kind of sexual violence and and sexual justice more generally is very intuitive. It's very symbolically satisfying. I mean, it's very symbolically satisfying to take an abusive man and put him in prison, have him pulled out by the cops. Very satisfying symbolically to arrest men who sleep with sex workers especially insofar as they seem to be expressing a kind of entitlement more generally to women's bodies. But these are terrible policies, (laughs) in fact. So, you know, policies that criminalize sex work in any of its forms disproportionately harm the women who work in sex work. It just makes their lives harder. It makes them poorer. It makes them more vulnerable to male violence. It makes them vulnerable to the violence of the police. It's just bad. And so you have to give up the satisfaction of those, that symbolic satisfaction of both punishing, you know, the men who buy sex, but also the symbolic satisfaction of striking sex work out of existence at the level of the law, right? Because striking something at in existence at the level of the law never actually removes it in reality. So yes, again, with the d- domestic violence, I think it's very hard, right? Intuitively, a man who is physically violent, sexually violent against his, his partner, you want him to be punished. 
So let me offer an alternative to the idea of just giving him a job. The other thing we can do is give women money, give poor women money, because the number one thing they need to be able to leave their partners, their abusive partners, is money. They don't have the means to take themselves and their children out of that home and set up a different home. We don't have well-funded, independent domestic violence shelters. We don't have a universal basic income. We don't have good, free public housing or child health care or adult health care, for that matter, in the US. You don't have to double down on the heteronormative nuclear family as a response to these this quite startling reality about how these domestic violence laws actually work. I think you can instead have quite a feminist, uh, socialist vision, which would actually emancipate women from, from the nuclear family. At the same time, I think it is important to recognize that for a lot of straight women in straight relationships where, where those relationships are abusive, it's not so much that they want their husbands in prison. They just want their partners to stop beating them. And so I think a certain kind of pragmatic attitude has to prompt us to think about what conditions would be necessary to get people out of certain cycles of violence. We're going to stop there for a minute to take an ad break, and we'll pick up some of those threads on the other side of the ad. Listeners, if you like what you're hearing, just do us solid and like and subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check out this week's Slate Plus segment. It's the first one in a new series we're calling Is This Feminist? Fans of our previous Slate Plus segment, Is It Sexist? will love this new twist. The first iteration will feature Susan Matthews and Shayna Roth debating whether Dr. Jill Biden keeping her job is feminist. Hey, Waves listeners, we'd like your help. In a couple of weeks, we're doing an episode on how to have a feminist wedding. We need your tips and suggestions. Please email us any ideas or questions at thewaves@slate.com. I want to go back to your point about giving women money as a potential way to prevent and address um, gender-based violence and domestic violence. You know, you're highly skeptical of capitalist feminism, as am I, the idea that putting more women at the top of a hierarchy that's already exploitative, that's already exploiting women, will somehow lead to better outcomes for working-class women. But, you know, within this system and talking about ways to sort of address the social and cultural reasons for gender-based violence, I wonder if getting women more money and power could help change cultural perceptions of what women are capable of, what women deserve. Does that make sense to you at all? You know, when I think about the politics of representation, for instance, and how hollow that can be, I also think maybe there is some kind of power in just changing what how people see the world and its hierarchies and who occupies which places in those hierarchies. Mm. Yeah, I think I also have very mixed and ambivalent feelings about the politics of representation because it's very hollow when you think of it as the entirety of your politics. And of course, that's in the interest of capital. If anything, sexism and racism 
while they've been very useful to capital, right, by allowing us capital to segment different kinds of workers and pay, you know, people who do traditionally women's work or the the work of people of color much less, there's another sense in which um, racism and sexism are a barrier to capitalism's need for, you know, so-called meritocracy, right? Just like the best talent coming to the top. At the same time, you know, I I think many of us have experienced that, like that that jolt of seeing someone you didn't expect to see in a certain kind of position. I mean, I'm I'm struck by the fact that I was barely taught by like any women when I was an undergraduate. And I now wonder whether that had something to do with why I never thought of myself as becoming an academic, right? Even though I wanted to, I just never thought I could. Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Um, But I think there's an interesting question here, though, because there's the problem of backlash. And there's the problem of the way in which the domestic sphere especially becomes a site of backlash as women enter into the workforce, um, and in particular enter jobs that were traditionally held for men, and are kind of more represented, right? I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that were to go hand in hand with an increase in certain forms of gendered violence. And you certainly see that, I mean, people in India talk about that as a as very much a serious phenomenon, right? You have this kind of extraordinary mass int- entry of um, middle class women into positions of power, but also just in kind of more ordinary positions of but that were previously re- reserved for men and you and and the mass education of women, higher education of women, you have that going hand in hand with like an increase in, in gendered violence and a sense of kind of male dispossession. So I'm not sure exactly how the politics of representation play out here. I mean I like the optimism of the vision <laughs> you're suggesting, but I worry it might go in the other direction entirely. Yeah, I mean this the more I think about these issues and sort of take myself down next step to next step to possible backlash to, you know, how to mitigate the the maybe unintended consequences, it feels like, are we better off just sort of addressing the symptoms of patriarchy rather than trying to somehow, like, rip it out at its roots? Like, I don't even know how we would be able to do that part. I think one has to try and do it sort of all at once. I mean, one thing I do think is that what would it look like to give poor women across the world like just more time, right? And what would they do with that time if they weren't having to worry about poverty and about racism and casteism uh, and environmental degradation? I mean, what would they do with their time? And I think one of the things they would do with their time is, you know, sort men out slightly, right? I mean, there, you could be thinking, rethinking questions of gendered education and acculturation and socialization. I think one has to have a kind of dialectical relationship to this. I mean, you know, one thing that feminists of the 70s said, I mean, people as diverse as like, Firestone on one hand and Adrian Rich on the other was that what you need is the mass entry of men into childcare, right? So you need the end of this idea of childcare as a special preserve of women. And for Adrian Rich, <laughs> the idea specifically was that like once you require men to rear children, they would st- they'll have to stop being children themselves. So they'll have to <laughs> over- <laughs> overcome their own anxiety about their primordial dependence on women. And so they will like grow up. For for Firestone, it's part of a, a broader project of just kind of emancipating 
us all from the kind of the sexual and gendered reproduction of labor in the family. But that's an interesting thing, because what you have is a proposal that on one hand is just very concrete material, like 24 hour free childcare. Like this would make the worst off people in the US so much better off. And it would make women in particular massively better off. And it's the kind of thing that you would think that capital might be able to just like provide, right? There's the money for that. At the same time, like that's the kind of proposal that maybe has a kind of broader transformative and revolutionary potential, right? It's what Andre Goetz called a non-reformist reform, a change that's possible under our, our current political circumstances, but that points in the direction of something more profound. And I think there are lots of those kinds of suggestions, right, that you can find in the history of feminist thought that we're now coming back to, especially while thinking about things like care work, housework, reproductive labor more broadly, uh, the privatization of care, all of these things that have become a particularly acute focus under the pandemic. I think feminists have a lot to say about, and they offer a possibility for changes now that would make people in a very direct material way better off, but that also contains a potentiality for like more revolutionary and psychic transformation. Mm-hmm. I mean, even something as simple as paying childcare workers more would seem to be able to attract more men to yes, that work. Exactly. So what would it what would it look like to take all of these areas of socially necessary uh, work and value them and value them in the way that we do under capitalist society by uh, paying it? What would it look like to have a more kind of egalitarian distribution of social care work across, you know, the genders? And and how would that change people's relationship to questions of, of gendering and gendered socialization? So I think we have time for just one more question. I want to address the title essay in the book, which comes from a piece that you published in the London Review of Books in 2018. That piece was called, Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex? In that essay, you explore the social and political construction of sexual desire. And I actually remember reading that essay and, you know, the question of how we learn to want what we want has always fascinated me. I really enjoyed reading that. And in your new book, you add a section responding to some of the criticism that that initial essay received. What do you think it is about the idea that our sexual desires might not be fully pure and fully formed from the moment of birth that triggers people so much and and makes them feel so um, offended by that concept? Right. So I think the most charitable thing to say is that there's there are really good, excellent political reasons to be wary of the political critique of desire, even though I think that critique is interesting and, and necessary and important. So you just have to look at like the history of queer liberation to think about the importance of the insistence on the kind of sovereignty and unmalleability of desire and sexual desire, in particular, politically speaking. As a matter of historical political fact, it was really important for gay and lesbian people to be able to say, I was born this way, this set of preferences, they're not preferences, they're just like innate desires, I can't change, stop trying to put me in It's an identity. Right, it's an identity. And because we live in a, a moralized culture where we think, well, if someone can't help it, then it's okay. Right. Um, then, then they're not blameworthy for it. That appeal to sovereign innateness has been politically really important. 
And you see that again in the trans liberation movement, right? So you see the invocation of a notion of like an innate gender identity or the discourse of being born in the wrong body, again, to fit into a logic that says this might be bad, but it's not bad if people have no control over it, right? If they're just sort of born this way. Now, for lots of queer people, gay and lesbian people, trans people, non-binary people, the kind of discourse of, you know, sovereign innateness makes a certain kind of lived sense, but for lots of people, it doesn't, right? Lots of gay and lesbian people, lots of trans people will tell you that's just not, that's just a very reductive and simplistic account of of desire and identity for me. Like, phenomenologically and, and in terms of my own biography, people will feel that there's a much more complex interplay of desire, choice, identification, Right? So that feeling of having different possibilities open to you and deciding to embrace one and set other things aside, that's very phenomenologically important to people. So I think one reason that people, uh, as you said, are kind of triggered by the idea of a kind of political critique of desire is because they're maybe wary of opening out into the possibility of a kind of reactionary response. Right. It's like, oh, if desire turns out to be malleable, then there shouldn't be any gay people because we should actually just put or there shouldn't be any trans people. That's the very charitable construal. I think for (laughs) a lot of people, though, there's just a defensiveness. There's a kind of recognition that, yeah, there are things that they don't really like or they don't feel politically that happy with about their way of being in the world as desiring creatures. They they want things that don't make them totally comfortable or that they don't want to avow. And it's comforting to just think to yourself, oh, well, these are just like natural. I can't do anything about them. They're so inbuilt. It's just ridiculous to subject them to any kind of interrogation. So I think that defensiveness that is is often triggered by a political critique like mine. And I can see that happening even more for people who don't like what they don't want, whether it's, you know, by virtue of the racism or transphobia or or fat phobia or things that exist in the culture that we are all raised in. People aren't attracted to certain kinds of people and the idea that, you know, racism or transphobia or fat phobia might have something to do with that. I think people feel like it that means it's their personal failing instead of, like you said, a, a complex interplay of like how you feel and the culture that you were raised in, which is not so much personal as systemic. Right. And maybe it's part of a kind of a broader um, social phenomenon. I mean, this kind of neoliberal phenomenon of wanting to be like this kind of perfect subject. Right. And so if it turns out that there's uh, you're subject to a kind of political critique like that's somehow offensive, whereas I just think of ourselves as all well, to use a religious metaphor, like totally fallen. Right. I mean, how could we not (laughs) be like completely shaped by these social structures of, of domination? This was such a fantastic conversation. Amia, thank you so much for joining us. This was, my brain is whirring like a computer that has too many tabs open. Um, so yeah, it was so great to, to chat with you. Thank you, Christina. I had a wonderful time. That's our show for the week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director, with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting The Waves by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcasts and bonus content of shows like this one. It's 
only $1 for the first month, so no excuses. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. As always, you can email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. We'll be right back.